2 Corinthians 9, 6 to 15. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, dear. That was a good reading. By the way, that's my wife, in case you don't know it. Um, the other reason I say that is because I'm about to say something about my wife. And I want you to know this. I don't pick the readers, okay? Um, so I didn't pick her for this time so I could say something about her. Um, Lynn does that. And so this is a complete accident. But when my wife um, decided, uh, I don't know when that was, when do young girls start thinking about getting married really early. She started thinking about getting married and she said primarily she wanted to either marry a farmer or a pastor. Eh, not bad. You got 50%. Um, I, I, uh, I think about that sometimes and I realize in retrospect that I could have done a lot better job of satisfying all her needs if I'd have been a pastor of a smaller church and also a farmer. Then I could have done both. And you know how on any given day, you're not really what you're supposed to be as a husband. And I could have been the perfect husband because I could have said, do you want me to be a preacher or a farmer today? I'm wherever you want me to be, right? No, I think it's a lot more complicated than that. And this sermon is not about our marriage, which is fine up until now. Um, <laughs> If you got an extra room, I might need it this week. <laughs> it's a really bumpy way to say something else. I kind of like the idea of being a farmer. Never was, probably never will be, but there's something really cool about it. As a matter of fact, I love living in southern Indiana where I drive by fields all the time. Where I live, on the way into work, there's a field on my right and a much larger field on my left. And at the corner, there's a field that goes miles that way towards the lake. And I love looking at the fields. I like looking at the fields any time of the year. Even in the winter, I like looking at the fields. When it's barren, when the soil is dark from a snow or a rain, and there's these tiny little stalks sticking out that are just completely dead. 
You say, well, why do you like that? I like it because of the symbol that is behind it. And what I mean, I grew up in South Florida and flowers didn't just pop up automatically out of the ground at a certain time of the year. You had to plant them. There was no such thing as bulbs that went into winter hibernation. And here, I love looking at the beds and bulbs that are in winter hibernation just pop up and they become lilies and they become all kinds of things, tulips and daffodils and crocus. Nobody does anything. But with the fields, it's a little different. With the fields, it's lying fallow. And I know within a few months, some farmer is going to get out there and he's going to plow the field and he's going to plant something, corn or soybeans. And the field will all of a sudden transform itself. Where it used to be dead stalks, green stalks will start to come up. I like the corn the most because you get to watch it grow all summer. It gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and it's just beautiful. Now, we live in southern Indiana, and we have the advantage of looking at cornfields. If you lived in New York City, you probably would think that corn came from the grocery store. But in southern Indiana, you know it comes from the fields. We have that advantage. But the people of the first century, they had even more of an advantage. When somebody like Paul or another author in the Scripture used the imagery of farmers and farming, because they literally had their hands in the dirt in a way that we don't, most of them. So many of them actually knew farming and did it. So Paul begins this passage of Scripture by telling those who are listening, I want to give you an analogy about giving generously to God's work. Here's the analogy, he says. If you give a lot, your yield will be great. Right? Just like if you sow liberally in the soil, you'll get more crops at the end of the year at harvest time. I actually want to go through almost like verse by verse this passage this morning and read sections of it for emphasis. The first principle that you see in this passage is in verse 6, your investment determines your yield. Listen to his words. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. You will get out of it what you put in it, says Paul, as it relates to giving. Now, of course, you might expect that this is not a unique idea with Paul. Uh, passages in the Old Testament reinforce this principle. And as a matter of fact, classical literature says things that are almost word for word like this. Poets in Rome say things like this. But let's remind ourselves of this principle with someone else's words. Some writer, we don't know who, in a book called Proverbs that we call canon of Scripture. Here are the words that the author of this proverb gives us in 11, Proverbs 11, beginning with verse 24. One man gives freely, yet gains even more. One man gives freely and gains even more. Another withholds unduly, but comes to poverty. A generous man will prosper. He who refreshes others will himself be refreshed. Investment. 
We usually think of that as putting our money somewhere that will earn interest. This kind of investment, Paul says, and the proverb says, is to literally give your money away. And when you give it away, it's an investment that gives you a yield. And the more you give, the more you'll get in return. Now, let me pause for a second and try to distinguish myself from a lot of other people who talk about this text, particularly on television, the health and wealth, the prosperity gospel. Routinely, these passages and others are taken to basically mean this. If you give a whole bunch of money to this church, you're going to get a whole bunch of money in return because you're going to get exceedingly wealthy. The more you give us, the more God's going to give you. The more you give us, the richer you're going to get. It's just that simple. And most of the time, the people who are speaking those words are speaking those words, and they're sending out some sort of something to get a return. I'm not doing that, okay? Whatever I'm doing, I'm not doing that. And I'm not suggesting that if you spend a bunch of money as in give it away to the church, God is automatically going to make you a millionaire. It's not that kind of return. I don't think that's the intent of the passage, though that does happen. God does bless you when you give, even financially. So what are the principles in this passage? Well, the first I just mentioned, your investment determined your yield, and Proverbs reinforces that. But that principle goes to other things too, not just money. Remember on one occasion in uh, Matthew's gospel, chapter 26, Jesus gave the disciples a directive about living. And he said, if you live by the sword, you will die by the sword. The way you live, that living will come back on you. If you live as a peaceful person, you will get peace in return. If you live by the sword, you're going to die by the sword. The principle is really large and doesn't just apply to money. But on this occasion, Paul especially relates it to giving. Your investment determines your yield. Now, before we move to the second principle, let's remind ourselves of something, right? The purpose of this passage is not give in order that you can receive. Give so that you will get a return. That's not Paul's point. Such motivation misses the point. The point is generosity. The point is cheerful giving. And the result happens to be that you will be blessed. But you don't give so that you're blessed. That's getting the cart before the horse. Second principle, I think you see in verse 7. God honors the heart, not the amount. Okay? So verse 7, hear these words. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly. Put another way, God doesn't want your reluctant money. Not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. See, it's not as though God loves the gift that God loves the money. It's God loves the heart of the one who cheerfully gives himself or herself in multiple ways, including financially, to the work of God. 
He's pointing to a matter of the heart. And as a matter of fact, we'll reiterate in just a minute, a decision to give is a matter of the heart. You decide to give. And God blesses you because you do. But you decide not out of compulsion. If you hear anything about this sermon and you feel like it's out of compulsion that you're about to give, don't. God doesn't want you to give out of compulsion. He wants you to give out of a generous heart. Cheerful giving is what God wants. So, Paul says, God honors the heart, not the amount. Now, this, again, is played out in lots of passages of Scripture in in a variety of ways. You may remember on one occasion, Jesus said, it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God than it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. What's the point of that passage? Well, among other things, I think it's this. Jesus is saying the rich man who is exceedingly wealthy and has more than he could ever use, that rich man's heart is set on his treasures. That's all he thinks about. That's all he does. He achieves greater and greater wealth. It's all about money. And because his heart is so set on things and money, it's nearly impossible for a person like that to get into the kingdom of God because your heart shouldn't be set on money. Your heart should be set on God. You should cheerfully give because God has blessed you so much. That perhaps is the difficulty that the very wealthy have, says Jesus, in getting into the kingdom of heaven. On another occasion, the same principle is played out when the disciples are at the temple and they're watching people come and drop money into what we would call the plate, but drop money into the offering. And there were very wealthy people who were coming and dropping lots of money into the offering for the support of the temple. And then a widow who obviously was a widow, probably not very well clothed. It was clear who she was. She had virtually nothing. She came and dropped a coin in the plate. And Jesus says, see that? That's worth more than everything else that's been dropped in. All these rich people who gave excessive amounts of money, it doesn't even compare to that tiny little bit. And the disciples are flabbergasted. Why? Because Jesus said, she gave out of her poverty. They gave out of their wealth. She said, my life is impoverished. I live from day to day. I have no husband and probably no children to take care of me. I am at the bottom of the barrel. And at the bottom of that barrel, I will scrape up enough to give to God. That's why her gift is greater than the gift of the rich people. Because it's about the heart, not the gift. Giving generously is the way God calls us to live. Not pretentiously, not dishonestly. Matter of fact, pretentious, dishonest giving has got a really bad story associated with it. Ananias and Sapphira. For those of you who know that story, don't give that way. That's not the way God wants you to give. The third principle I wish to highlight is in verses 8 through 10. The more you give, the more you're blessed. Uh, Listen to his words. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, 
you will abound in every good work. As it is written, he scattered abroad his gifts to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Now, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase the store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. He's going to bless you. The more you give, the more you'll be blessed. You know, actually, he's quoting here Psalm 112, Psalm 112, verse 9. I like the way that Psalm 112, verse 9 is summarized or paraphrased by Eugene Peterson in his paraphrase called The Message. Listen to the way he paraphrases it. Speaking of this righteous man, he says, He throws caution to the wind, giving to the needy in reckless abandon. His right living, right giving ways never run out, never wear out. You can't out-generosity God. You can't out-give God. The more you give, the more blessings you receive. Or in the words of Jesus, give and it will be given to you. It will be pressed down into your lap so full that it will run over. On another occasion in... um, One of the prophets, actually, it's the last book of the Old Testament. In that prophecy, Malachi is speaking to the people about their life before God. And he says, you need to change. You need to come back to God. You're in trouble, nation of Israel. And he speaks the word of the Lord to them in this way. Using the words of the Lord, he says, I, the Lord, do not change. So you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time... Your fathers and you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Even then, God says, I didn't destroy you. So, here's the promise. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how will we return? How do we do that? And I answer, will a man rob God? This is God speaking. Yet you rob me. And they answer, but how do we rob you? And God answers, in the tithes and in the offerings. You are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you have been robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing on that you will not have room for it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops and the vines in your fields will not cast their fruit, says the Lord. Then all the nations, oh, this is the key. Then all the nations will call you blessed and yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. You know, Malachi probably said a lot of other things to the people. In any of these situations where we're reading a prophet, you can be sure there were other prophecies that haven't been recorded in parchment and pen. But in this writing, he answers their question, how should we return to God with this particular passage? He might have said, 
How should you return to God? You should return to God this way and this way and this way. He might have listed a lot of things. But for whatever reason, on this occasion, he said, this is the way to return to God. And you know why I think he did that? Because there's nothing that touches our heart more than our stuff. There's nothing we treasure more than our money and what we have. And so God says, if you want to return to me, show me you love me by giving me back what I've given you. Show me that you understand the deep blessing that I have given you day after day by turning back those gifts to me. It'll be a hard attitude that'll change your life. The next uh, principle, the last one to point out, comes in verses 12 through 15. It's already been alluded to by Paul. Cheerful giving produces blessings and actually contagious joy. Listen to these words. This service, says Paul, that you perform is not only supplying the needs of God's people, but it's also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourself, men will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. You will be blessed, says Paul, as you give in a comprehensive, all-inclusive way. That is to say, God will bless you in every way. And one of the ways God will bless you when you give is your joy will overflow. And your joy will be contagious. And people will say, thanks be to God for the great gift he's given us. Thanks be to God, let us give more to others so that we can experience the grace of God even more. Let's be a joyful, contagiously joyful group of people. That's what happens, says Paul, when you give. When I think of generous or cheerful giving, I can't help but think of Christmas time. Really, honestly. Do you give begrudgingly at Christmas? Especially to your kids, those of you who have them. Um, I, I think I've given begrudgingly before, but it's usually because somebody gave me a gift that I wasn't expecting, so I had to give them one back. You know, that kind of begrudging. Oh, shoot, I forgot that. that. That might be begrudging, but for the most part, I don't give to my family begrudgingly. In all the years of conversations my wife and I have had, they've basically revolved around two things. One is, are we giving too much to our kids? You know, so they have an excessive amount and they just expect these things. That's a good question to ask as a parent. But the other question we frequently ask, really, is how can we adjust things just a little bit so we can give them a little bit more? I can't remember one time. We always spread the gifts out on the bed. Still do it now. They're gone. And they come back home at Christmas and we spread the gifts out on the bed. And we try to look at them and see if it looks equitable. We have to. Never once have we looked at it and said, this is the stupidest thing we've ever done. I just think we ought to keep this money for ourselves. 
I don't think it's even gone through our minds. We want to give to our children. I think that's a demonstration of cheerful giving. I remember one occasion, uh, it was back a number of years ago, before cell phones were really that great. I mean, not only had technology not advanced very far, you know, most people had dumb phones and not smartphones, but uh, not every kid had a phone, but it was becoming popular for kids to get phones, and finally we decided we would, you know, buy into the culture and get them a phone. And besides, it was more convenient for us. So we bought them a phone. And it was one of those little flip phones, you know, the cheapest one you can get. And you get a rebate and you pay $3 for the phone or something. And so we, we got them this phone with a family plan and they had it and they were happy. And then over time, a year or two went along and they started talking about texting. And we thought that was just from the devil. But we finally caved in on that too. Um, and, and then they started talking about their phones and they weren't very good phones and they were actually not working sometimes. I mean, they, something would happen, they would die and I'd have to go back and see what I could do about it. And, you know, it said one occasion the kids, come on, dad, our phones are just not working. Okay, I'll take them to the Verizon store. I'll see what I can do. Took them to the Verizon store. There was something and we fixed it and got their phones back and Christmas was approaching. And my wife and I decided we were going to give them a gift that they would never anticipate. Now, this is when BlackBerry was starting to be cool, right? It was just coming out, and that was the smartphone. So several days before Christmas, I don't remember how many, I went to the, Black, uh, to the Verizon store, and I got them two Blackberries and upgrade and all that. Well, you might know that when you do that, you have to cancel the old phone, right? So for several days, their phones didn't work. And they were like, Dad, these are the dumbest phones ever. Our friends have phones that work. And we're just walking around with dead phones. I said, I'll get to it after Christmas. I'll figure that out. And, like, and it was at the time where there wasn't quite as much of a sense of entitlement, right? If you lose your phone now, it better be fixed by the end of the day or they better give you a new one, right? You can't get along without it. We don't even have a home phone anymore. So they were just complaining about it. I said, yeah, I'll get around to it. And Christmas Day came. And we were opening the gifts and all that kind of stuff. And finally came to that place and they opened up their gifts and the blackberries were in there. They exploded. I mean, just not the phones, the kids. Explo- <laughs> exploded, man. I got more hugs and kisses and you're the greatest dad affirmations than ever before. And I loved it. I loved every minute of it. Just like I always have. Not once did I think to myself, ah, I probably shouldn't have gotten those phones. Only when they did something with them, they weren't supposed to. But I didn't begrudge the gift. I think that's what Paul's saying. He's saying when you give, give like that. God's given you everything, so give it back to him. There's the four principles. Now, let's make it practical. Just the last couple of minutes, and here's my advice. Figure out your own way if you don't like my practical plan. First step, look at last year's giving. Now, I'm just going to talk about giving to the church, which I won't get off on a rant, but I think that's where you give first. But no matter, look at last year's giving. It's not hard to do. As a matter of fact, if you gave here, you'll probably get something in the mail. It's a tax report. They didn't have that back then, by the way. The tax report that tells how much you gave. Look at that number and say to yourself, am I satisfied with that? Remember, nobody's looking over your shoulder. It's you and God. Am I satisfied with that? Is that the percentage I really want to give? Does that make me a generous, cheerful giver?
Just ask the question. Then when you're done with that question, decide what your percentage is going to be for the upcoming year. Like now. Maybe your decision is, I've done a good job. I will keep that percentage. But it's probably more likely that your decision, if you're honest, is going to be, I could give a little more generously. So make a decision. Did you notice that Paul says, examine this carefully? Not exactly his words. Think about this. Make a decision. I think that's interesting because sometimes we think spontaneous giving is more spiritual than planned giving. No, not really. I think it's actually the opposite. Planned giving is more spiritual than spontaneous giving because you know ahead of time, this is what I'm going to give and I've dedicated it to God before it ever gets to my hands. So ask yourself, when you look at the numbers, is that where I want them to be? Second, decide what your percentage is going to be. And third, come up with a plan. I don't know what your plan's going to be. There's lots of ways of doing this. Your plan might be to put your checkbook in your pocket every time you come to church from now on. You never go to church without your checkbook. That might be a plan so you can write something. Your plan might be to go online, which you can do, by the way, and give to the ministry at ECC online. Someone came up to us some time ago and said, the way you have things set up is really inefficient. There's better ways to do this. You can make it easier for us to give. You can have this thing set up so there's automatic drafts out of our accounts and go right in to the budget for the church. And I said, that's a great idea. We'll figure it out. So we are trying to look at that to make giving easier, especially for the new generation that does things differently. On the other hand, I have to admit, I've talked to some people about giving before. You know what they've told me? Some people, they've said, I don't think I want to do it that way. Because for me, writing a check is like literally an act of faith. Because I look at the number, I write it down, I have to own it. It's not automatic. I'm not making a suggestion about how. I'm just suggesting come up with a plan. So evaluate last year's giving, decide what you're going to give, and then come up with a plan to do it. So you notice I read Malachi, the prophet. No one has ever told me that I was a prophet. And I'm not telling you I am one. But I'm going to make a prophecy. Okay? Here's my prophecy. If we all do that, if we all do that, I don't care if what, what the percentage is, if you do that, Next year, we will not have a budget deficit at ECC. That's my prophecy. Now, of course, it's a wonderful prophecy because I can always say, if we're in a budget deficit next year, you didn't do that, right? But (laughs) what I'm saying is, if we really did it, budget deficits would disappear. If we really did it, we would have no needs among us. We wouldn't. Because that's the way community works. That's the way God's people were designed to work. That's what Paul is talking about here. There shouldn't be any needs among you. Not if you give generously. So the first part of the prophecy is, if we do that, there'll be no deficit. Here's the second part of the prophecy. If we really do that, we will be spiritually a more healthy church.
Not financially. Spiritually. If we truly, deliberately give out of the generosity of our hearts, we will change. It just will happen. And the result shouldn't drive the process, but the result will be God will bless us in multiple ways. I have no idea, okay? Just want to go on record as saying, I have no idea how anybody gives. I don't check the records. I don't know anything about the numbers apart from the bottom line concerning where we are. And from this day forward, I do not plan to change that. I don't want to know what you give. I don't want you to know what I give. I want you and I to open our hearts to God and decide, as Paul says, how to give. And then be spiritually enriched because we follow Christ. So let's try it. Try it for size. New Year's not over. What is it? 25th of January? We got time. Matter of fact, you already lost a month. So, you know, starting in February, you can start this new plan. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for your love for us and for the many blessings that you send our way. Um, They overwhelm us. Um, If we were to start to count them, we'd run out of numbers. If we were to start to be serious about it, we couldn't help but um, try to bless other people with everything that we are. Um, If we acknowledged the rich blessings, even the financial ones that we have, we would be much more generous givers. So we pray that you will help us to be that. Not because we're looking for a return, but because we love you. And because our offerings are a thank you for all you've done for us. We pray that you will change our hearts in this way, uh, transform us from the inside out, and we'll experience the blessing you wish to pass on to us. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. We please stand. Because there's a lot of words.